There are too many mics, it's hard to know which one. To... Uh, hello everyone, thank you for being here uh, for the last panel of today. Um, it's titled No Sweetness Here. This is the second day of Living Room, the 154 New York Forum program. Um, this panel was very much developed with around and almost four, I want to say, Serebiri Moses. <laughs> Uh, or let's say, in in um, in a way, I mean, when you're curating a, a a talks program or any kind of thing, you you start with an idea or a concept or a collection of people. Uh, in this case, I had a few ideas in mind, and I had a, a few people I wanted to engage. And so, I one of them was was Moses, and I called him up, and we had this very long phone conversation, going through his projects, his interests, how they would intersect with ideas that I was developing and um, and at the end of the conversation this kind of panel had had taken shape. He will explain more about the research he is doing and and how um, it, it leads to no sweetness here and uh, uh, in the meantime I will just say a, a few words about him. He's an independent writer and curator from Uganda uh, currently living in um, in the US he has published essays in Chimarenga in South Africa, in Frieze in the UK, and in uh, Contemporary and Germany. Uh, he um, has written about African artists, but also African curators. He also has a practice of photography, which his bios doesn't always uh, mention, but photography and text have gone together in his practice uh, a lot. I'm very happy he was able to be here because he's on the curatorial team of the Berlin Biennial, which opens in just a few weeks, less than a month, about a month in June. That's in a month, in case you hadn't realized. <laughs> um, so you can imagine he's busy with other things, but he was able to be with us. Um, and uh, and he, I, I want to say also that he, is an alumnus and has served as faculty of the ASICO International Art School, uh, which is run by BC Silva and which is one of the, the a, a very um, beautiful and strong projects in terms of providing uh, um, a kind of in-depth alternative mode of education for artists and curators on the African continent for Africans in Africa. And there are too few of these initiatives that exist and, and that is, certainly an important one. Uh, so on the, I will let Moses introduce the panelists and they will introduce their work as well. Um, I just wanted to thank them for being here and to mention that um, uh, Babiri Leila has a solo show that just opened at Gordon Robbie Show in Union, uh, on Union Square and that Phoebe Boswell also just opened a solo show. This was not planned when we invited them at all, but she just opened a solo show last night at uh, Sapar Contemporary in Tribeca. She also has a special project on the floor just uh, underneath. Um, uh, and I would like to thank uh, Kirun Zegu for uh, joining us also uh, from Binghamton where she teaches. Moses, the floor is yours. Hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the panel. Uh, I'll just want, I wanted to uh, introduce the panelists and make a very short uh, presentation. Well, uh, introduction, not presentation as such. I'll be very, very, uh, I'll try to keep my time short. So, um, 
uh, as Omar said, I'm working on the Berlin Biennial, um, but I'm also an independent curator who has an ongoing uh, in, uh, research practice that has often, in the last two years, um, engaged um, notions of, of uh, African feminism, uh, African uh, trying to specifically think about an archive of, of um, African artists in, in, in various parts of Africa, mostly Uganda. Um, and um, that is how through uh, that kind of research that I've um, managed to do projects that have led us um, here. Um, in a way, um, the work, uh, I'll say No Sweetness Here is a, it's a title um, of a short story by Amata Aidu, who is uh, said to be um, one of the founders or one of the theorists of African feminism. And, um, and what we're going to be um, kind of elaborating on is more to do with our practices and, uh, and think through the questions that um, the practices that we have um, provoke in relation to questions of liberation and feminism in Africa specifically. Um, I'll start with Babidia Leila. Um, I met Babidia Leila as a visual artist, now uh, has, has having a solo show at uh, 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 Sam Gordon's gallery, Gordon Robbie Show. Um, she is someone who I met in Kampala in uh, 2014, and uh, I was we were both in residence at, at 32 degrees east. And uh, she's a sculptor, and uh, she's a multidisciplinary artist, and she's also an activist. And so, um, Leila was um, one of the first openly gay. Um, artists in Kampala that I, I, I ever encountered. And uh, as, a, as a gay man myself, I, it, it made, gave me a lot of strength because I wasn't out at that time. Um, and so um, that's how I, I met Leila. I was very encouraged by her um, approach to activism and art, specifically trying to marry these fields together. Um, so welcome, Leila. Um, Phoebe Boswell, um, many of you would have uh, known of the name Phoebe Boswell. Um, <laughs> uh, really uh, having a, a rising star in the, in the art world at the moment. She's an artist, uh, uh, British and Kenyan. And uh, I actually know Phoebe because I, I, I saw her work in, in Jalada, the Jalada magazine. If you don't know it, uh, just go online, click, uh, type Jalada. It's a Pan-African collective that publishes African writing. And um, uh, Phoebe wrote a very beautiful text that was featured in that journal. And that was the very first time that I read about the text had um, very much to do with uh, um, women's um, struggles in 
Kenya specifically, and a quite historical, but also contemporary perspective. So the way in which Phoebe um, engages this, hist this kind of archive, I was very interested in specifically. So you're welcome. Uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nkiru Nzegu um, to the panel as well. Um, <laughs> I have actually just met Dr. Nkiru Nzegu, and, um, but um, I'm very happy to uh, have you here, um, particularly with Leila and Phoebe, um, because I think your work speaks to us and to um, even their practices as well. Um, Dr. Nkiru is uh, currently a professor. Uh, she's also a philosopher. She has written uh, books. One of her books is called Family Matters, Feminist Concepts in the Philosophy of Culture. Is that, is that the right title? <laughs> <laughs> And um, it, it kind of uh, proposes um, a specific, specific concepts within the philosophy of culture that relate to feminism. And um, I, of course, during my research over the last two, two years, I've, I've actually encountered uh, Dr. Ankuru's work actually discussed in very prominent journals and in very prominent uh, uh, books on the history of Nigeria. Um, she's cited as one of the foremost um, authorities on, 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 on women, on the relationship between culture and the place of women within culture in Nigeria. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but and I think she has a very strong research and, and very strong perspective on that. So you're welcome, Dr. Nkiru. And so we'll, with that introduction, and we start with Babidi. Um, oh, no. Wait, sorry. Did you just say that? <laughs> Sorry, um, I, I went in the order that I um, introduced, the, so I just changed the order of presentation. We're actually starting with Phoebe Mosso. I'm sorry. Hello. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Phoebe. Uh, thank you so much, Moses, for that. Very kind um, introduction. Um, I'm going, I've written this because I'm a little bit knackered. Uh, so um, I'm going to read rather than. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, my dear friend and writer Julianne Okotbetek sent me this image. Well, not this one exactly. The one she sent was uncensored, but sitting in a coffee house in Brooklyn trying to locate a version of this picture um, for this talk, everything I found of this exact image seemed deeply uncomfortable with the truth of it. Um, each photograph I found of these women contained these increasingly desperate looking attempts to cover the women up. 
Each story that accompanied the images, most from local Ugandan news sources, contained exasperated observations that these women were indeed totally naked in capital letters and described them as going wild. The judgment saturated within the journalism was palpable, not for the drama within the image or the narrative, but for the nudity. So this is where we begin. My own response to the uncensored image was also shock and rage. My immediate reaction was what is being done to these women? Um, how are they being violated? Who is violating them? What is the violence being done to their bodies? Julie at first only sent the image. She didn't, um, she, not the story. So I sat uh, with my own thoughts, steered by how we have been conditioned to view the naked female body, and in particular the naked black female body, as passive, as victim, as exploitable, as exploited, as prone to violence, as a vessel for it. I was wrong. These women were not victims. Well, they were certainly being exploited by greedy government officials who had been threatening to remove them uh, and their community off the land. Uh, they'd been doing this for 10 years prior in order to grant permission to private investors to develop on it. These women, I learned, are the Acholi women elders of Apar, northern Uganda. And on the day this image was taken, Monday, April 16th, 2015, they had undressed before members of their community, policemen, soldiers, and government ministers, um, protesting the demarcation of a 40-square-kilometer piece of land in Apa on the border between Amaru and Adjumani. I'm probably butchering that, but uh, districts. According to the BBC, on the day... On, on the day, two government ministers had arrived with surveyors. Their plan was to demarcate the land where the women and their community live. But they were shocked by what they saw. As a policeman took pictures, one of the women approached him by rolling on the ground and then raising her leg. He ran away. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, these women on this day were not victims. They were, and this image, this image uh, in spite of the incessant censorship of it, and perhaps even more so because of it, were heroic. These women were doing what was in their power to effect change. For the Acholi people, like many African communities, a woman stripping in public is laden with meaning. It is, the, it is more powerful than fighting, as it, as it is believed that such actions invoke the worst of curses on the woman's enemy. These women took off their clothes and freaked the men out. They did so in response to all the exploitation and abuse their community had faced. One, Magdalena Alam, who was 58, spoke of her son being shot dead by the authorities in 2012. I undressed because I'm hurting a lot. My son, Alanya, was killed, she said. And now they've come back to send us away from our land, yet this is my grandfather's land. They affected history that day in a way that the men in their community had been unable to, in a way that only women with nothing to lose can. I began to research... Oh, oh no, I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> Sorry. Great. 
I began to research the naked protest and learned of all the times that women, and in particular African women, had laid their bodies on the line as an act of resistance. In 1992, Wangari Mathai convinced her friends to strip naked in Nairobi to protest against President Moy's regime's treatment of political prisoners. They stood naked in the park named Uhuru, Freedom, after Kenya won its independence and demanded the release of their men. They were badly beaten, but their actions shifted the historical narrative. There are many examples of this, but because history is usually written by men, these mo moments in female hero of female he heroism tend to go undocumented. I wanted to make a work that honored these women who have used their bodies in protest when they've not been permitted to use their voices. The body is a site through which we experience the world. We inhabit our bodies, we cultivate them, honor them, dishonor them, feel pleasure and pain and understand and express who we are through them. We navigate the social and cultural constructs of the world via them, we're codified because of them, we're gendered, racialized, sexualized, cat categorized in ways that are often beyond our control. Yet we speak through our bodies. We relate and to and understand each other through our reading of them. We use them to protest. I wanted to make an army of naked women who I would project onto the white male-dominated walls of the art gallery, insisting them uh, themselves upon it. I wanted to draw these women into existence, to animate them. I wanted them to be real nuanced bodies that belong to real women. I put a call out on social media, explaining the project in no real great detail, but asking women to come and join my army. A call to arms, in a sense. I call the project Mutumia, which means woman in my mother tongue, Kikuyu. Um, but some say it translates more directly as the one whose lips are sealed. Interestingly, when I asked my mother and my aunties whether Mutumia did mean... Um, the one whose lips are sealed. At first they said, no, it just means woman. Um, and only later came back to me and said, no, actually you're right. Like it does mean the one whose lips are sealed, but because uh, the language itself is so patriarchal, um, they, had, they hadn't in 60 odd years thought about it. And obviously language creates society. And so it's, really important to challenge these types of words in order to challenge the misogyny and patriarchy within society. Um, I, I didn't think I would get much of a response from this, um, but it was actually amazing. And the conversations began with so many of my peers, fellow artists, curators, writers, thinkers, academics, poets, mothers, friends, friends of friends, strangers, who all responded to the notion and wanted to be part of it. Each woman would come to my studio individually, and we would embark on this revelatory naked exploration of protest, what it means, what it emotionally means, what it looks like in the body. I sat with my camera and documented each journey, and I would give them prompts or provocations, um, a lot of them f uh, based on um, my reading of Audre Lorde's essay, Transforming Silence into Language and Action, and I asked them not to perform, but to just feel themselves through the process and feel what their bodies do when, um, when we discuss these things. Is this going to work? Oh, sorry. 
Right. Um, together, collectively, we explored strength, grief, collective womanhood, despair, shame, resilience, freedom, joy, each woman bringing her own story and experience to the work in ways that went far beyond my own understanding of it. One came as an act of rebellion against her mother, who within the culture that she had grown up in had always made her feel ashamed of her body. To her, protest and freedom meant standing with her legs apart, chest out and raised. After our session, she sent me a text to say that she felt herself walking taller through London than she had that morning. Another, a refugee from Congo, brought with her a level of grief that housed itself between us and the work in a way that would resonate throughout my making of it in, in this kind of way that was so much greater than the work itself. The conversations I had with these women were captured unwittingly in the documentation footage, and it became really important that the, the voice, the story, um, found its presence within the final work. The piece downstairs, the three-channel video, three video, is actually footage from the like, outtakes from that process. Um, so go see it if you haven't. <laughs> I spent time, uh, I spent nine months animating these women, frame by frame, pencil on paper, and then I composited each figure digitally into the final rendering. A six channel, 30 minute looped animation, the piece wrapped itself around the gallery in floor to ceiling projections. So the drawn women were larger than life scale and they engulfed you, the audience, in a panopticon that I'm not gonna lie, certain men found really unnerving. In the first showing of it um, in Geneva as part of the biennial of moving images for which it was commissioned, one guy, <laughs> he came up to me at the press event and, and like he was exasperated and he asked like, as a man, what am I supposed to do in this room? Like, what, what am I actually supposed to do when I'm here? Um, he was completely unraveled. Um, in the middle of the space, I positioned a soundscape of interactive senses, which when stepped on, activate a series of soundtracks of the, of the voices of women. I used some of the candid studio footage I had captured in the, in the process. Um, I also worked with a gospel choir in London, um, to whom I posed the same provocations that I'd asked the women in my studio, and I asked them to respond with their voices how they wished. I asked Wambui Mwangi to read her essay, Silence is a Woman, and Ndinda Kyoko to read The Kanga is Present. So the piece became a platform, in a sense, for fellow Kenyan women's writing. I had a conversation with my mother. I posed questions derived from Audre Lorde's essay um, to women in London, and I transcribed their responses and then swapped them anonymously with each other, so they each recorded each other's uh, responses. Um, this act of collective ownership of holding one another's words and language was particularly potent, and one participant, a trans woman who had recently... Um, who was recently transitioning, um, wrote to me of how hearing other women speaking her words of concern and hope and strength was a simple but deeply empowering stage of her own reckoning. Um, her portrait is also downstairs. Um, when the work moved to a new city, I found women within that city to add to the soundscape. So the piece is constantly growing. Experientially, the room is silent. 
The animated women project onto the walls of the gallery, projected onto the walls of the gallery do not make a sound, but if you stand in the space in their presence and acknowledge them through yours, you activate the soundscape. So if the room is empty, it is silent, but if there is one person in the room, there is one voice heard, or that person has to be very active within the space in order to activate multiple voices. If the gallery is full, there is a multiphonic crescendo of women's voices. So you, the audience, become activists in this sense because you enable these women's voices to be heard. Furthermore, the space is white, the carpet is white, so your footprints easily and quickly mark the space. This is not insignificant. To extend this further, I laid some charcoal within the space, um, giving the audience the exact same agency I had in drawing the women black pigment on a white surface to do what they wanted within the space. Every mark becomes an act of resistance. In Geneva, when I showed the work, Swiss people um, tend to follow rules. So uh, this was an artwork, <laughs> and um, I think they also like to be clean. So the interaction with the charcoal was not super pronounced. However, when I showed it in Kiev, this time in a corridor due to the architecture of the space, within two hours of the work being open to the public, it looked like this. By the time I returned for the closing of the show, um, uh, it looked like, uh, yeah, it looked like this. Um, it had become this active place of rebellion and resistance in a community of young people who really needed it. It changed the work completely. And of course, there were the usual graffiti expected things like penises, and I even saw a swastika. Um, uh, but the women stood valiantly amongst all the chaos, resilient even amongst the reality of the messy, loud contradictions of our world. Incidentally, I won a prize for this work, um, post-graffiti, uh, um, and I was judged by, the numer by numerous uh, gatekeepers of the elite white male-dominated art world. Post-ceremony, one judge, who I will not name, met me as I clambered ecstatic off the stage and proceeded to tell me that he really enjoyed the work, um, but he wanted to give me some advice on um, what I should, should and should not make moving forward. He said, um, and I quote, young lady, you have what it takes to really make it. And I smiled. And then he looked at me up and down, and I kid you not, he said, the looks. And then he winked. And then, <laughs> and then he said, but if you want to make it, you will have to listen to me, young lady, and take my advice about which of your work works and what doesn't. Incredulous, I wondered if he... It's like dramatic pause. <laughs> I wondered if he really understood the piece of work that he had just gifted me for. And then I realized, of course he did. And of course, also, he did not. 
and his endorsement of it perhaps even de-radicalized it in this context. Once the establishment praises one for something subversive and pushing against it, can it even be subversive anymore? Can art that sits within the constraints of the art world, um, a space inexorably tied to capitalism, misogyny, and white supremacy, ever truly subvert it? Just thinking out loud here, and, but I'm thinking deeply about the women of APA and all the women who have used their bodies to speak and all the women artists who are trying to speak. And I'm wondering, can women standing naked in protest ever win or telling the, or telling the truth in their art ever win um, if the very telling of their victory is steeped in a prudish policing of the female form? I'm left with these questions as I continue to make the work. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Phoebe. I'm so inspired. I feel like I'm really inspired. Um, to cut it short, thank you, everybody who is here. And uh, thank you, Sarah Viri. Uh, thank you, Doctor, for being here. Uh, I'm Babidia Leila, and I'm going to give you a, a, the Babidia Leila from 2007 to 2018. I kind of to just did my notes straight on there. I'm going to take you back a little bit. I'm Babidi Laila, artist, gay activist, and proud lesbian that I always throw out to everybody. Uh, in 2007, I was admitted to Macquarie University as an art student, but my father always wanted me to be a lawyer, just like my elder brother. First day at school, I was inspired by Dr. Lilian Navlime. She's a famous uh, sculptor. I, when I met her, I was so fascinated by her works. She does a really very big wood sculptures. And uh, by then I didn't know much about art, but I was so fascinated by the fact that she was a woman. And I was so much into, she was really, a, she's really a small lady, not fat and all that. I was fascinated by her and the energy she really had and her size. So uh, it took me some minutes to talk with her. It changed my um, going to the law school and now I'm like, I really wanted art. And uh, actually I joined art because of her and I joined sculpture as a course because of her. After the short uh, time I, I talked with her when I was at orientation, I'm like, I think I need to do this. I can do it. And that is how it all started off with me uh, becoming an artist and not a lawyer. Um, uh, I was asked how I really know all these ladies who are 
feminist and then act, um, artist at the same time, Dr. Lillian, Dr. Dr. Lillian Nablime, Dr. Rose Chirumira, Maria Naita, Margaret Nagawa. These were all my teachers and uh, I passed through their hands and they taught me sculpture. Uh, Margaret Nagawa was a historian and she took us in our history classes. That is how I met these uh, ladies. Uh, a little bit, I also majored in sculpture, ceramics and graphic designing. And I'm um, jumping a little bit back to uh, the anti-homosexuality bill in 2009. As a student still at home and I was out to my family but still scared about my surroundings in the School of Art, I still didn't, did, did meet uh, LGBTI community uh, in um, addition to my daily schedule. 2009 is when the anti-homosexuality bill was proposed and uh, it became an active bill in 2013 after being signed by the president of Uganda. As the LGBTI uh, community had sued the past, uh, Pastor Scott Lively, who was preaching head to the Society of LGBTI Community. I remember this time I was still in school, but uh, we had to go putting on masks to court. And as an artist and as an activist by then, that inspired me on making art in form of escaping, because this time around I wouldn't tell my lecturers or wouldn't just throw it to school that I really wanted to look at the LGBTI community in my art. So I started uh, reading a lot about West African masks and uh, creating African uh, masks that I, my lecturers used to call beautiful faces. But as a person, I was kind of escaping from the reality that I was producing work that is, um, was kind of uh, had a um, hidden uh, identity for my community. So that is how I kind of started producing masks at that time in 2009. Um, so I kind of threw a little pictures on uh, gay versus the homophobic pastor who was a pastor at the university where I went to. So he used to gather all the students and teach them and preach how homosexuality is really bad. And uh, we also had our own struggles, but so that was the past at that particular that time at school at Macquarie University. And then on the other side, we were on court. So we were both there in the same platform, kind of all fighting for what we believe that is right. Um, taking you back to the old masks that I used to do, the, the first one is the mask that I used to do at school to kind of represent my community and to kind of make some little money for survival by then. And then when I came here, my masks kind of changed because when I visited the Fire Island Art Residency, uh, I realized uh, it's a free space where boys would do their thing, do their sex, but uh, I, on the things they used to have, they used to have masks on them. So I started looking at these masks, not as a sign of uh, hiding something, but kind of ha them having fun. So uh, my masks changed from the old version to this latest version. Um, kind of taking you real quick in whatever. And then I go to Macquarie University after my BA. In 2012, I was admitted 
art, the School of Art, and then I tell my professors, I'm back to do my master's, but I really want to look at the LGBTI community in Uganda. And I, uh, they asked me, what are you talking about? Why the LGBTI community? Who is paying you? They, we had a, lot, a big discussion on why LGBTI. I'm like, I really, I'm an activist. I'm an artist. I'm a gay person. I feel like we, we've spoken it. My, we've said it. But there is no person in the art world who is speaking it. Because art speaks a lot. Art, art talks to a lot of people. And they told me, why? Why, why LGBTI? And uh, suddenly, uh, first day at school, we, everybody had to talk about their thesis and explain exactly what it is. I remember I was the last person to uh, talk about what I really wanted to do. I told them I want to bring into the issues that are affecting the community. Now that we have the anti-homosexuality bill that is not yet passed, but is about to pass, I feel like we have to, to talk about this but as an artist in an artistic form. And here my professors, I remember they were all seated around and ready to listen. One gave out a question and asked, okay, define LGBTI. So I start lesbian, one goes out. Uh, bisexual, another one goes out. By the time I completed the whole, um, whole story of LGBTI, just defining the term, I was standing alone. I realized this is not the right space for me because I, I've, really, I've really done my, my BA and I've been with you people, you believe in me, you know I'm a smart kid. You know, I, I'm, I'm friends with you, but right now I just knew no one, no one was ready to stand with me at this particular point. And uh, it didn't make me stand back as an artist. It didn't make me feel so bad, but I felt like, yes, I have friends at the School of Art who we meet in gay bars at night, well, they're straight at School of Art, but they are gay somewhere in our spots. I feel like we, we have the talent. Why, why don't I push it out? I started throwing it to everybody. I remember I had a lot of discussions with my professors, Dr. Lillian calling me and telling me, please turn it down. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I just gave it a break. I didn't go back to school, but I still, insisted on my doing my LGBTI, uh, helping my gay people through art. Uh, and uh, I'm taking you real quick to what now sparks me to feel like, yes, this is a very important topic we have to talk about. I am an artist. You don't want me to do my work in your space, but let me find the different uh, problems in my community. And I basically started with the uh, word Ebisiaga. Ebisiaga is a, a, a Luganda name, which means sugar cane husks. Sugar cane husks may be termed as vomit because uh, nobody can ever eat uh, sugar cane husks because they're no longer sweet. So it's trash that not even animals can eat. So. That is how they call the gay people. As an artist, I said, no, I feel like this is the time to put life into what is called trash. I need to show the value of uh, our community. In our community, we have lawyers, we have doctors, we have a lot of people who are helping the country. But I, do, I feel like we have to bring it out. We have to speak it loud. Uh, somebody will ask, why do you really have to speak it out? Yes, we had to really speak it out. 
because we are there. We, 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 are, we are us. We need a visibility. Because uh, when I looked at all this, this is when I started uh, doing a lot of work by then. It was from uh, phone material. I started collecting a lot of phone material. And I sparked off with uh, the anti-homosexuality bill and picking out the different dangerous articles like uh, imprison the gay, like there, were, there is an article that says life imprisonment. I started off with uh, I'm safe here because I felt like we'd rather be in prison than being out of uh, the community to be bashed and beaten by community. I felt like a gay community, transgender people felt more safe in a prison or jail than being out there and being uh, mistreated by people who don't care about them. So that was the series that sparked me off and did a lot of uh, works about I'm safe here. Uh, this is one of my latest works, but I just wanted to show you, uh, actually it's showing, I didn't capture a very good uh, picture of it, but this shows how I kind of work with phone material and kind of create these beautiful works and murals. This is one of the works that I'm showing right now in the solo show. And uh, I'm also taking you through exposing my sexuality. Uh, it, it feels strange, but I started exposing my sexuality to everyone around the university. And I know my confidence made so that one had to talk. I, I actually, I had to make everybody know that yes i'm gay and that made me a lot of gave me a lot of confidence as a person so that nobody would speak about my back at my back because they already know who i am so now i just made it made a point every time i came in they would just say oh she's there and i was so proud because i, I had people i was representing who were in closets and some people would just come to me and say oh thank you Oh, how do I do? Where do I get service? And this is how I got a lot of uh, university students from my course, uh, even former students, uh, even students who are just at university, who kind of started emailing me, talking to me, we need this, how do we do this? I kind of started doing, giving service, kind of help uh, direct them on this and that to different organizations. To me, which as a, a, a person, that is what I really wanted to do. And that is, I, want, I really wanted to make a safe space for my people, even when they didn't come out like, yes, I'm really out. Uh, thank you, Sarah Viri. Uh, I'm so happy you're like, I gave you a stand because I'm surely there and I just don't care about what people say about me. And I'm glad that I created a community and I created a very good community, even some of my lecturers that I can't just say, uh, actually, I like, yes, we are behind you. Um, first time still showing my sexuality. This caused a lot of chaos at the School of Art, where I was asked to take it out on social media. Please take off those photographs. I, I just wanted to be wild, just see what, who really supports me. What do people talk about this? So I just got my pen and then just started drawing women doing that thing. And I got a lot of criticism over this. But as an artist, I said, yes, this, are, this is paper. Attack the paper. This is what I want to do. And this is what I want to air out. So um, I just had to bring in a little flashback over that. And then uh, also felt so comfortable when I went to different art spaces where I felt so safe, but it's still not safe in Africa. I did the first work is called uh, 
kusawa kwa wote, which means equality for all. Kusawa kwa wote is a Swahili word from Tanzania. And uh, when I was in Tanzania, I really uh, started doing a little research on what I really wanted to do for the residents. Uh, interesting, uh, I, those women were not supposed to, see, to speak at, about anything. Women were not supposed to talk about sexuality. I realized even just throwing my being gay, I, I was at a risk at some point. And then I'm like, okay, let me just keep myself. Yes, I want to talk about something. I want to address something, but I'm, I'm actually in a wrong space. But I still did this piece, which I call uh, Equality for All. And I feel like it represents uh, the community. And I feel it also represents the silenced women. So it was uh, work that I did in 2013 in, uh, in Tanzania at Nafasi Art Space. And then I started reading about the transgender women. And this was, uh, I call it my love. And uh, it was basically my love for the transgender women. And I did this beautiful uh, faces of transgender women. And I just didn't find, uh, give the final piece, but this is how it kind of looked. And uh, still using the self space, this, this book is, uh, we had a art forum, something like that, Sarubiri. And uh, to me, because it was uh, supervised and uh, guided, by people from non-Uganda, it gave me a lot of strength to feel like this is the right platform to blow it out. And uh, we were given art book, uh, notebooks, everybody to do a, a, an art piece. And I decided to do this book where uh, I decided to write a story, a history about me coming out, uh, and a history of whatever has been happening to me. People have inspired me people, things that I've really read, people that, things that I really believe in. And then I burnt it, and I'll go back to a little bit to why, why I burnt the book. But uh, it's, 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 it, gives, it uh, gave a lot of criticisms, criticisms still in university, because this is where the forum was conducted. And uh, all my lecturers were there, all my professors were there, students were there, and then I had to really explain more about the book. And the question is still, why? Are you uh, populate, um, polluting the environment? Why are you uh, endangering our students with uh, your being gay? But I feel like we need space. We need to talk about this because it is real and it is happening. Um, so the burnt book takes me to why I really burn all my sculptures. I used, to, I used to burn most of my sculptures. It was a journey of frustration and being betrayed. I started burning all my works. I felt like a therapy and healing to me as an artist, felt relieved. But as I sat down, burnt my works, more ideas came on and I started looking, looking at the final burnt works as artworks too. I decided, I, um, I held the dis uh, discussions with my professors, uh, Margaret Nagawa, when she came to view my work at my home, she's like, are you really fighting with government? Do you really wanna fight back like this? This, this is a discussion she brought to me. I'm like, I'm not fighting anybody. I feel like I'm doing it because I really want to heal. I'll just get all my work and just put it down, burn it up. And then at times I'll just collect plastic and then just burn it out. 
and she told me, uh, I see it because you're fighting government, you're fighting the popular environment where you are because you're frustrated, because you're frustrated. You don't, want, you don't want people to talk about what you believe in. But I think it's not the right way to fight back because you, you're not only pop, uh, polluting the environment, but you're also making yourself sick. You're going to get cancer through this. And I sat over it, I slept over it, and then I realized, yes, there's a lot of toxic that is coming out. And I'm like, as an activist, do I really want to fight back in a bad way? I don't want people to see us fight to them in a bad way. I feel like we need to explain people who we are. We need to show people uh, uh, the, the beauty in us. We need to show the brain. But I, I didn't think that I was really fighting them. I was fighting the environment by polluting it. This is how my professor looked at it in that angle. So I said, no, I should stop burning. But before I stopped burning, I had already added Bavilla Leila bands, sculptors. So uh, most people <laughs> in the gay community, uh, we have a password where you go to the club. And uh, if somebody calls you on the street by Leila bands, of course you turn because that is, that is your password. So on my password, I added bands. So that is what happened. Uh, panic every day in the gay community that actually kept on making me think and rising and thinking that we have to do something. Why do people think that it is very important to start throwing your sexuality? You can do it in bed, you can do whatever you want. But if my government puts us a law that prohibits us to do whatever I want to do, and they put articles that say imprison, uh, life imprisonment, death, anything like that, and then the next day you have to wake up, uh, tabloids are writing, uh, Uganda 200 top homosexuals named, and then you, you're waiting for a phone call from your friends, oh Leila, don't come out of house today. You, you're in front of the paper, so it, it was a lot of panic, and I think as a, an artist, as activist, we, we really had to do something, because our government or our leaders, they never say any good thing about homosexuality. They say every gay person has HIV. I don't have it. I'm not against people who have it. They say everybody, you know, they have all these weird, weird um, um, things they talk about gay people. I'm like, we are not like that. We have solutions for our problems, but we are not what you think we are. So I think, and this, they've created a lot of hate. So the next day you come out and then the, the, there's a lot written about the homosexuals that I feel like we have to talk about this. And I, there is no way of going back. Um, my latest bodies of work, which this is um, just married. Oh, <laughs> I am uh, so inspired by transgender men and just men doing their things. So, so fascinated about whatever is going on. When I came here, I instead of being frustrated, I started seeing a life in the gay community. And I feel like I need to respect the life and, and leave it to the fullest because I never lived it. Uh, well, we had a good time at times, but it was always hiding. You have to go to, to the club and you have to keep uh, people outside to tell you, oh, police is here. You have holes in the club, you have to run throughout. You know where potholes are in case somebody raised the bar. You know where to pass to escape. So I, when I came here, my life kind of started changing and uh, I respect a lot mm, transgender men and transgender women. And most of my works right now are into uh, transgender men, and this is a uh, husband and husband.
um, more of uh, my works. Uh, the band era came back, but I wasn't frustrated. This I did here, but I wasn't frustrated. I just felt like, why don't I do a recap, a little recap about my small history on band sculpture. And uh, this is my solo show that I'm doing, uh, that is actually on right now at uh, some rubber shoe, a golden rubber shoe at gallery. And uh, the, the title is The Empire of Kabaka Mwanga II. Uh, yeah, the title, <laughs> the title, actually I wrote it in English and uh, the real title is Amatwari Gaseba Kabaka Mwanga and in English it's The Empire of Kabaka Mwanga II. Going back to history, right now our government, our parliament, our members are bringing back the anti-homosexuality bill. And I, there is one of the records that my friend sent me where one of the member of parliament was saying, we've never had a history of homosexuals. We don't, and gay is westernized, and she's speaking it loud. I've read history a little bit. We have had a king who has been a bisexual, and she's his Kabaka Mwanga. As an artist, I feel like I have to put life in the Kabaka Mwanga people have never wrote about in a good way. And I feel like I have to bring the king back and tell the people this is not from the West. This has been here even before the, the, the Europeans or the white people came. A little history about uh, Kabaka Mwanga. Uh, in uh, Kabaka Mwanga was a king in uh, 1880, right? And uh, he was a bisexual king, and uh, parents used to give their boys to the king as gifts to go and make the king happy. And it was normal. Boys just did the thing, and the king enjoyed it. It was normal. Nobody ever talked about the king that he was doing something wrong. And in form of uh, gifts, people used to just go there to, to make the king happy, because it it's what made the king happy at that particular time. Uh, but when the Christians, our missionaries, came to Uganda, they started looking at the act of the king as bad and preaching against it. The king was so mad at them and uh, mad at uh, 12 martyrs who are said to have been his ex-lovers who had refused to give him sex when they were told, oh, homosexuality is bad by Christians because they had become Christians and Christians were saying it's wrong. So that is what really happened, which, which is a bad thing. He killed them, but the king as himself, he, he built a lot of uh, palaces in Uganda in his time. In his time, this is the time when, when iron smelting was brought to the country. There was a lot of trade by the Arabs that was introduced to the country and to the palace and to the kingdom itself. But uh, this, all these beautiful things, they don't talk about them. They say, oh, he was a gay king and he killed martyrs. They don't say he killed his lovers. They don't say there was something related to the king and these boys. So as an artist, I feel like we have this history even before uh, 
Europeans came, even before the white man came. We need to, to bring it out. We need to educate these members of parliament because most of them are, come from the royal families. They have, they've known of this history. Why don't they say the truth? So this is the body of work I kind of created. And I, I'm twisting the names whereby I'm calling uh, Prince, Princess Juko, who would have been a Prince Juko, and uh, I want to bring, I'm twisting the names actually, instead of a, a, a princess name, I give it to the prince name, and uh, the figures also kind of uh, look masculine and I call them women, um, and it's given a discussion to my lecturers right now because I talk with them, and which, which, which inspires me, I feel like I have to make you talk, because you have to talk. Um, that one is also one of the sculptures that is showing, and that is uh, Namasole, uh, respecting the Queen Mother, Namasole wa Kabakamwanga, who is Nakatia, Namasole Nakatia, I think you don't know that, that is in history, but she's uh, the, the Queen Mother of the Kabakamwanga, and uh, those are some of the transgender women I'm so possessed with, and I do a lot. I think that is what I have for now. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Leila. Um, we are, well, we are going to go straight into Dr. Ankira's presentation. <laughs> yes. Okay, sorry, on. Um, Can we please have uh, light more? Because we don't have a presentation. Uh... Okay. Um, a presentation. I don't have a presentation. Um, I was told a discussion, so I'm ready to discuss. <laughs> um, one of the things, and the reason I don't have a presentation was because I knew I was going to be on a panel with two artists. And it's always important to me, having trained as an artist, but having been derailed and moved into the world of academe, I haven't been able to do my art. So I know it's always important, particularly in the context of Africa, for the artist to have the space to speak. And it's even much more important when we get to women artists, because um, most of the time, the representation of art and Africa tends to privilege the men. And for a variety of reasons, you don't have a lot of the women uh, artists having central space to be able to talk. So I decided I was going to organize or respond to some of what they are going to say, uh, not in terms of trying to challenge um, the perspective that they have, which is always thought about as the work of the academic or the critic. Look at the work, challenge, critique, make mince meat of whatever they're doing. But in the context of Africa, to be able to put the framework or the framing around the works 
to be able to create a depth, uh, both historical as well as philosophical and in terms of religion. So as both of them were talking, one of the things that came to mind is how much Africa has been, let me put it this way, castrated by colonialism as well as the religions. And when I say the religions, I mean the two religions that traces its root to the Abrahamic religion, Islam and Christianity. Because the two brought into the space of Africa a different ontology, a different way of being that fundamentally uh, tries to cloud over what exists in Africa and problematizes it to the point that some of the ancient practices that honored humanity were then problematized as something to be ashamed of, something we shouldn't even look at honorably. So I'm going to start with uh, Phoebe's presentation when she presented the forms, the figures. And in the context, it would be, you know, women. But we go beyond women because the more you understand the, the traditions of Africa and the more you understand how beings are constituted, no adult female is tied to the notion and conception of a woman. Because within the colonial historiography that came to Africa, the concept of woman is very much tied to the concept of wife. It's very much tied to a concept that doesn't change even as you become an elder and even as life progresses. It's a concept that limits the capabilities and possibilities of what the female is able to do. So fundamentally and typically, being a woman is not as important as being the mother. And being a mother, you go through a whole range of roles and responsibilities. You could be an artist, a dancer, work in the political domain, be even in the military. And when I talk of military, I'm thinking of the Abomi, the old history of Dahomey, where you had what was called for a long time the, uh, the Amazons, but they are Hanses. They are military personnels. So you have um, female who occupy a range of professions and their identity is not tied to femalehood or womanhood. It's tied to the roles and possibilities and duties that they occupy at various points in time. They could also be monarchs. They are rulers. There's a whole range of things. So when you are talking about the female adult, there's a whole range of, of things you have to bear in mind to be able to calibrate and bring to attention the personality you're talking about. Now, the forms that Phoebe presented 
If we look at all those forms, that is the form of the naked female or body as power, they are all of elderly women. You don't find young women at the prime of her life in the childbearing age performing in these particular roles. It's a ritual role. It's a ritualized role, and they are harnessing powers that go beyond what many people know and think about. So they tend to be adult women, elderly women. And what is this saying? When your mothers or your grandmothers come out in public and, and disrobe, what they are challenging and telling is bringing you back to the moment of conception. Because there is a saying which goes this way, that no matter your prominence, your power, everybody came down the canal of the vagina. And so far as you came down that canal, you can never be superior to the mother. And so when they disrobe, it's not simply a reminder that whoever is doing this is violating this female form, but you're violating the sacred norms and laws of the universe. That you are challenging your mothers to the point that they have to remember the point of your entry into the world. And so it's a curse that goes not just to the moment, but one that will follow whoever is being cursed wherever they go. And so it begins to unravel a different ontology, an ontology where energies around the world are interconnected and where you could impact on another person by impacting that energy and giving voice to that energy, vocalizing that energy, and performing that energy. Because rite and ritual are enacted in the rite of performance. You give it life, and you send it out. And even if you think you've been able to quell it, or you see the physical, I've been able to hit these women, what you don't see are the, what is called the invisible forces, the energy that interconnects all of life has been giving voice to go after you. Yorubas will call it ashe in terms of the life force. And the most potent figures in African art are those of the naked mother. Yorubas Ose Shongo, the staff which the Shongo divinity carries. And Shongo is the divinity that invokes lightning and thunder. Regal forms. But if you look at the staff, the central form is that of a woman with the breast um, in a peak position, and she's kneeling. Ikunle abiyamo. People interpret it as the pains of childbirth. But it's the pains of giving birth, but it's also the pains where the mother engages the other reality 
to be able to bring back into this world the being and the forces that is going to inhabit the born child. So it's a dialogue with the other world. It's a dialogue with Olodumare. It's a dialogue with Orumila, the god of divination, where you are going to define which child is going to come. And it's a very critical moment because the child may die in the process and the child will live. But the life and growth of that child depends on the mother's powers of engagement and propitiation of the forces that are there. We tend to devalue the roles of mothers today because we don't think deeply about what is actually happening at the moment of birthing and of creation. So within many African realities, societies, cultures, bringing a new life into the world is a very, very important and sacred moment. And when you think about the powers that are being controlled, harnessed at that time, is being controlled by the mother. So that's the same figure who years later of her life, when she has accumulated wisdom, she now enters into a different space whereby oftentimes people may say she's the witch, quote unquote. But what they say about her being a witch is because of the immensity and enormity of power they have been able to accumulate throughout their lives and which they control and things they have learned. The plants they have learned how to speak, what the plants are saying, the properties of plant, the properties of even the animals that are in their vicinity, the powers of children, the ways in which they bring and hold the society together. So sometimes you hear in different parts of a proverb, the owl flew over the, over the house, and the next day the child died. Who does not know that is the witch that killed the child? So sometimes even the imageries that are utilized to talk about these elder women could be the images of birds particular types of birds. But what each of those imageries are talking about is the powers that the women and the mothers and the elderly mothers have been able to accumulate and possess. Societies oftentimes will have to propitiate them to be able to become a whole nurturing society. If you do not propitiate them, in the same way they bring about through creation, they can destroy and remove with the other hand. So the form and imageries of women in the Western reality is one that is calibrated and birthed in subjugation, subordinate forms. On 
the African continent in many societies, including those that are not matriarchal, the figure of the mother is a, liberty, a, 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 a liberation figure. So when I saw the women there, and usually people will be talking about, oh, they are naked. What they are speaking is their religion the religion of Christianity or the religion of Islam that has defined the women, female body of this age in a particular way. They are seen as enfeebled. They don't have power. They should stay at home uh, or be sent to an old people's home. They no longer have anything and wait for them to die. The African continent tells you, flip the script. These are the most powerful forces and forms you have in the society. And so when they perform certain rituals, that is what they bring to bear. And in these ways they perform the rituals, they are also custodians of ancient knowledge with regards to how to utilize the word as part of curse. And the question that will always be asked, do you have a voice? And so people think when the question is raised, do you have a voice, meaning, can you speak? Oh, no. They are talking about a deeper level of speaking where you can speak things into reality, where you can change reality through speech. But to understand what is going on, you have to understand the philosophical reality that is being presented before you. And this philosophical reality is the one that underscores that at all times, all life is interconnected. And everything in life possesses energy. And once you learn the energy pathways, you can control and change things. So, the power of the female body, particularly the power of the ancient mother body, is a, is a form of awe. And one that if you don't, if it doesn't command respect, it will destroy the person who challenges it. So, let me move to your paper, or your presentation. Because, again, this notion of the female principle in Africa is oftentimes in this contemporary capitalist economic days represented as one in which oh, African women are subjugated, African women have a lot of problems, African women, and the imagery is that they have a basket on their head, a child on their back, a hoe on their shoulder, with all the worn cares of the world on their faces. And the African woman is dumb. And oftentimes, they are also mutilated. So the body of the female, of the African female, is one of vilification, regardless of whether it's the body of the mother or the body of the young uh, mother at the prime of her life or of the young 
pubescent girl is always presented in ways that undermines what that body represents. There is something about that continent where when you look and carefully study the societies, there are more matriarchal communities in Africa than patriarchal. Colonialism has flipped the script by controlling the power, the political and economic power of the day and forcing a particular narrative. The colonial power has been buoyed by the religion that came with it, which is Christianity. And that Christianity also talks and centers the male and the patriarchal figure at the center. That's true. But it's taking place in a contest, in a, in a continent where you have more societies, families that are matriarchal, mothers at the center, than patriarchal. And currently they are using the laws, contemporary laws, to override those matriarchal formations that go back to millennia to represent Africa as a patriarchal society where women have no voice. And that false narrative is represented as African traditions. Not long ago, I was looking at the Tuaregs. Even though they are represented, the Tuaregs are now part of ISIS and they are hell-bent on destroying all social forms of life in um, the Sahel region of Africa. The Tuaregs are a matriarchal society. And when the, a marriage breaks down, they have a party. Daughter is coming back finally. It's time to celebrate. Patriarchal script, marriage, is a time Wow, we now celebrate because she's finally gotten married. She's no longer a spinster. She's not sitting on the shelf. So all the derogatory type of narrative is attached to the single female within the Western scheme of reference. Within the Tuareg is a time that the daughter is coming back. It's time for celebration. Switch to the um, Mozambique. The male has to move over. You want to get married? You have to move over and live with the grandmothers and the great-grandmothers and the mothers, and you have to abide by their code. That used to be practices in Africa. But all of those have, are now being erased by a radical form of Christianity or a radical notion of Islam, whereby all of these do no longer exist, and if they exist, it's not natural. Because the colonial order that came meant that a male had to be at the center. So if you follow that colonial script, or colonizing script, or the script of coloniality, many people miss the transformatory roles of women 
on the continent. And so you're talking about when the colonials tried to move into Ashanti Empire in the late 19th century, they had to meet with Yashentua. When the, the males were terrorized and they couldn't go back to power to, to fight to the, in the battlefields, she got up in the assembly to tell the men, you guys are sitting here. I will destroy the army with my left hand, which was calling their manhood to order. And when they couldn't rally themselves, she led the battle. And I bring her up, not because she's an outlier, but to make the point that when society oftentimes gets to the point whereby there is crisis, existential crisis, the male in the society turn to look to the women, to the mothers. A community called Abo, all along the, um, the lower reaches of the River Niger, they controlled the, the uh, movement of goods. There's a warfare. No Abo soldier will go to war unless the queen mother, the Omu, that's the female monarch, sanctions it. And when she sanctions it, she is in the first canoe with her symbol leading the battle, the naval battle. The male monarch is entrapped in his place, in his residence. He doesn't come out. She is the one who leads the battle, and that's when all the young men will come out. Now we are going to fight. Because one of the things that the Omo represents, she controls the force and the principles of birthing. So even if you die in the process of battle, you are going to be born again. Because she controls part of that power. She is going to make it right. Ensure that the arrows and the flings of the opponents do not get to you. But if they get to you, you are going to come back again to life. To complete the cycle that you started. So she controls power in the physical reality. But she also controls power in the other physical, metaphysical reality. And that is the rituals and the religion that people believe and that animated them and allowed them to go. And at that point in time, historical time, it's incomprehensible for a male to say, that's a woman. Woman has no meaning. It's that's the Omo. And when you talk about the Omo, you are talking about a personage, a being who controls and manipulates so much power. You name the specific role of the person you are dealing with, not the anatomy. And so the anatomy is what is privileged with the reality that came with colonialism. And because that anatomy is privileged, 
The focus is only on the male anatomy, but in the other reality, it's the female that is privileged. And so when Leila was talking about her work and her activism, it reminded me of the courses I have taught. And it reminded me of the conviction that Wangari Matai came out and stood in front of Arab Moy. Arab Moy was a person who, if you run foul of him, you have to give up your life. Literally. He'll kill you. He makes no bones about it. He doesn't get his hands dirty. It might be you are driving home to your community. Suddenly, you'll find a huge trailer or a tanker. And of course, I'm talking babureki, babureki, meaning there's no break, there's no break. They will use the tanker or the trailer to mow down the car and kill the person. Next day, it will be on the papers, an accident happened. And this voice, who is a gadfly to the government, suddenly died. So there are many ways in which you run foul of Arab Moy, you don't live to tell the story. Wangari Matai came into being. And Wangari Matai, not only did he, sorry, did she deal with Arab Moy, Arab Moy eventually left. And that 1992 images that um, Phoebe talked about was one of those cases where they were making a, a stance that Uhuru Park will not become a field for the buildings of Arab Moy and his cronies in that place. It's going to remain a people's park where there will, it will bring greenery in the middle of uh, Nairobi. In 2002, you had a case in Nigeria, the Jaw women in the Delta. They've dealt with Chevron, Shell, BP, oil companies, and the pollutions continued. And of course, the males were trying to kidnap and kidnap. After a, a, a time, nothing was being done, and tragedy was dogging the, 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 the people. The women came and took over one of the oil rigs. And during that staging of taking over, once those old mothers took off their clothes, those local men who were there dove into the water because you don't want the curse to follow you. It doesn't matter how educated you are. You know the implications. At the conference, um, the peace talks, in um, Ghana, Accra, Ghana, the Liberian peace talks dealing with Charles Taylor. Lee Magbowe was one of the women who, when she was being hassled, decided enough was enough. She began to pull off her clothes. Lee Magbowe now is a noble laureate. Wangari Matai is a noble laureate. There's something to be said that even after they've done what they did, they got the Nobel Laureate Prize. And those potentates they were fighting against have been cast into the dustbin of history. 
So once we shift our lens and begin to look at the African reality as it was before the caricature that is represented today as African cultures and traditions, you begin to find, you begin to find a, very, a different narrative. You begin to see those women who have emerged to fight. Their names are not just remembered or restored to history. Their traditions and histories can then be told. Additionally, there is a range of social practices that people, contemporary Africans from those various regions will tell, will say, never existed in Africa. And my first talk is, what are the Yandaudus? Yandaudus, to all intents and purposes, they are gay. But they do marry. The only difference is that the ways in which the African society represented its own practices, it doesn't share nor borrow or take the political overtones or strident tones of the West. So if you're looking for gay people, oh, no, we don't have gay people. If you're looking for Yandaudus, oh, yeah, 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 we remember, yeah, we have them. Okay. Isn't Yandaudu gay? Oh, no, 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 you know, they, they do get married. So you have bisexuals. Oh, no, we don't have bisexual. There's going to be all kinds of contortions presented. Part of my course, I teach about woman-woman marriage. And people will say, is that gay marriage? I said, no, it's woman-woman marriage. And you, if you go to do research, you find it dotting all over points in Africa. Women marrying women. But that woman may be married to a man, but she marries another woman. So even the notion of marriage does not overlap with the European or the colonial or the Christian or the Islamic mode. Within Africa, marriage is a social institution which you utilize for social ends and objectives. That's it. What they do in the bedroom, take your nose out of it. Okay? So that is what you begin to find that practices that oftentimes people here in the West may be saying, oh, this is radical, this is new. And you say, if you really understood Africa, we've had it for a long time. Done, presented in a different way, but it doesn't borrow the language and the politics of the contemporary West. So, for artists and for Africans who do work, it's, all, it's imperative to break through the abstract construction that has made it difficult to see the range of practices that have been created over centuries, millennia, to make life useful for the people at the various historical period in which they lived. Thank you very much.
I'd just like to take this uh, opportunity to thank um, uh, the panelists. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nkiran Zegu. Thank you so much, Phoebe Possel. Thank you so much, Baria Leila. Um, um, unfortunately, uh, we do not at all have time for questions. We're way over time. But I'm, I'm happy that we had such a crowd and I'm happy that you are here to, to be part of this conversation. Um, we, can, we can speak outside or we can carry on the conversation later. Thank you very much. And, and thank you, thank you very much, uh, Moses, to you as well. Obviously, the subject was too huge to be contained in a panel, and even in the building is actually in closing. Everybody is out. Security is waiting for us. So I will just ask that we all promptly make our way out. The weather is kind of mild and nice. We can speak outside, but that means outside of the actual building. <laughs> Thank you very much to everyone. We start again tomorrow at 1 p.m. with Emmanuel Iduma.